welcome to this mini-episode of the Presidencies of the United States. As always, I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As it didn't fit well into the overall narrative, but I thought it might be of interest to listeners, this mini-episode will explore one of the pivotal figures of the Washington presidency, his first Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton's origins are mired in mystery. He claimed to have been born in Nevis, and historians have argued over whether he was born in 1755 or 1757. Hamilton's mother had abandoned her legitimate, dominating husband, but as divorce was, quote, an expensive, torturous affair in the colonies, Hamilton's parents cohabitated in an extramarital relationship. His political opponents would attack him for his illegitimate origins in later times, and Hamilton would claim that his parents were married, though all evidence seems to point to the contrary from a legal standpoint. Even more so than Washington, Hamilton's early life was filled with tragedy upon tragedy. Ron Chernow, in his biography of Hamilton, describes early life for Hamilton and his brother James up to 1769 as follows. Quote, their father had vanished, their mother had died, their cousin and supposed protector had committed bloody suicide, and their aunt, uncle, and grandmother had all died. James, 16, and Alexander, 14, were now left alone, largely friendless and penniless. At every step in their rootless, topsy-turvy existence, they had been surrounded by failed, broken, embittered people. Their short lives have been shadowed by a stupefying sequence of bankruptcies, marital separations, deaths, scandals, and disinheritance. Such repeated shocks must have stripped Alexander Hamilton of any sense that life was fair, that he existed in a benign universe, or that he could ever count on help from anyone. That this abominable childhood produced such a strong, productive, self-reliant human being seems little short of miraculous. Indeed, Hamilton would soon lay in a position as a clerk for a mercantile house, which exposed him to, quote, a fast-paced modern world of trading ships and fluctuating markets, before local leaders gathered together funds for him to travel to the mainland British colonies for an education. He ended up studying at King's College in Manhattan, now known as Columbia University, in late 1773 or early 1774, around the time of the uproar over the Tea Act. Hamilton first took up his pen in the colonial cause, then, after the Battle of Lexington, joined up with a militia company. However, Hamilton would quickly prove himself to be a thoughtful proponent of the colonial cause, who was not afraid to make his opinion known. In late November 1775, Hamilton was writing to John Jay, a delegate to the Second Continental Congress from New York, about his disgust and objection to having recently watched someone accused of being a loyalist being tarred and feathered. Hamilton asserted that, quote, In times of such commotion as the present, while the passions of men are worked up to an uncommon pitch, there is a great danger of fatal extremes. The same state of the passions which fits the multitude who have not a sufficient stock of reason and knowledge to guide them, for opposition to tyranny and oppression very naturally leads them to a contempt and disregard of all authority. While expressing his interest in public service, this letter also reveals what would be for Hamilton a lifelong pessimism about the capacities of the common man. In the first part of the next year, Hamilton would successfully campaign for a position as head of an artillery company, he would have to put his nascent political skills to good use and was ultimately able to win enough support in the New York Provincial Congress to gain the position. 
This would not be the last time that Hamilton was able to convince the New York legislature to agree to his will, and the young officer quickly gained a reputation for, quote, his innovative genius in analyzing a need and ignoring his own status in pushing for reform. General Washington would have the chance to observe the young man and his abilities at Harlem Heights as the Continental Army was driven out of New York City by the British. And in January 1777, Hamilton would join Washington's official staff as an aide-de-camp. Many others would have reveled in the opportunity to be brought into the fold by the only national figure that the young nation had to speak of, but Hamilton saw it as a defeat. Hamilton yearned for action. If we were going to fight for independence, then he wanted to be in the middle of the fighting, not locked to a desk writing letters to every Tom, Dick, and Harry who decided to write to Washington. And believe me, there are lots of Tom, Dick, and Harrys, as well as some Sues and Joes and you name it, writing to Washington. He still did it, though. He joined Washington's staff and remained in the general's confidence for four years as the war drug on, despite the fact that, as Hamilton and Washington biographer Ron Chernow notes, quote, one senses that he, Hamilton, was the only young member of Washington's family who felt competitive with the general, or could have imagined himself running the army. It was temperamentally hard for Alexander Hamilton to subordinate himself to anyone, even somebody with the extraordinary stature of George Washington. He had the deepest admiration for Washington, even if he didn't wallow in hero worship. He had misgivings about Washington as a military leader, but not about him as a political leader. By February 1781, though, Hamilton had had enough. Whether deliberately or not, he picked a fight with Washington, and though Washington soon cooled his anger and tried to make amends, Hamilton used the opportunity to request a transfer off of Washington's staff, to which Washington agreed. Hamilton wrote to his father-in-law that, quote, For three years past, I felt no friendship for him and have professed none. The truth is our own dispositions are the opposites of each other, and the pride of my temper would not suffer me to profess what I did not feel. Hamilton didn't want a friend or a father figure. He wanted a field command. Meanwhile, Hamilton was writing to Robert Morris, the superintendent of finance, out of the blue, offering him a proposal that ran to 31 printed pages of how to firm up the credit of the United States and establish a national bank. Though brazen, as there was a wide social gulf between the two, and Hamilton had little credentials to add to his name, it succeeded in catching Morris's attention, and indeed sparked a relationship between the two that would ultimately pay off for the young man. Meanwhile, Hamilton was finally given the opportunity to lead men in battle when Washington called on him to assist in a little operation down in Yorktown, Virginia. Indeed, Hamilton personally led a raid on some of the British positions during the campaign. He finally got the action that he was looking for. Once it was all done, though, he rushed back to New York to be with his wife, Eliza. Hamilton had met Eliza through the army, as she was the daughter of Major General Philip Schuler. She was described by Hamilton biographer Willard Stern Randall as, quote, a strong, outdoors-loving young woman, and she quickly made an impression on Hamilton upon her arrival at army headquarters. Hamilton had rather of a reputation of being a ladies' man, but with Eliza, he went from Lothario to Romeo. Only a few months after meeting her, Hamilton was writing to her mother on April 14, 1780, asking for her hand in marriage, and the two were married in December of that year. Their marriage would be a source of strength for Hamilton, but would also be an entanglement through which he found himself in scandal when he violated his marriage vows. 
but that's getting ahead of ourselves. When Hamilton headed back to New York following Yorktown, it was to be with his young wife and their newborn son, Philip. Now that the war was wrapping up, Hamilton turned his attention back to the law, and after obtaining a six-month extension to resume his studies at King's College, one of only two people who were granted such an extension, mind you, he would ultimately pass his exams and become a lawyer in New York. Practicing law wasn't enough for Hamilton, though. In the same year as he earned his credentials as a lawyer, he published articles attacking the Articles of Confederation as a weak form of government, persuaded the New York Assembly to call for a national convention to rectify some of the weaknesses of the Confederation government, and earned a commission thanks to his friend Robert Morris as receiver of continental taxes for New York. And you thought your schedule was hectic. Oh, and did I mention that he was serving in the Congress? Oh yes, he had been appointed to Congress too, and assumed that office in November. His time in Congress would help him to see firsthand the deficiencies of the government under the Articles of Confederation. Meanwhile, he also found himself thinking of finance, working in 1784 to co-found the Bank of New York, the second bank established in the United States. Hamilton himself wrote the outline for the bank's charter. This experience helped him to see how the nation's struggling economic system, burdened as it was with financial speculators, coupled with its inefficient government, were destroying American trading and prospects for any type of a prosperous future for the young nation. He would soon find himself colluding with George Washington and others to figure out a solution. Hamilton would serve as a delegate to the Annapolis Convention in 1786, a meeting of representatives from five states to discuss trade matters, but which would ultimately lead into the Constitutional Convention of the next year. I think we'll stop here as we'll have much more to say about that convention and Hamilton's role in it when we get to James Madison's pre-presidency episode. Hopefully this has provided you with some insight into the man who would become Washington's Secretary of the Treasury and a key leader in the nation's first political party system. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to send them on via email to presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, or on Twitter at presidencies89. Source information for this episode, as well as past episodes, can be found on the blog at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. And you can also listen to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher if you're not listening to us from there already. As always, thanks so much for listening and join us for our next full-length episode. Hi, my name is Joe Grogan. And I'm Eric Ulan for DCEKG. DCEKG is all about the how and why of Washington, D.C., what's going on, what's going on behind the headlines. We spend a lot of time talking about health care and economic policy, but frequently delve into trade policy and sometimes national security or whatever's happening on Capitol Hill. Between Joe and I, we have nearly five decades of Washington experience. We put that to work with our guests to explain to you what's going on in Washington. I always found myself calling Eric when I didn't understand what was happening and always found him to be really good at explaining to me some of the things that I wasn't seeing, and I hope our guests will get the same type of insights. I always found myself talking to Joe when I couldn't believe what I was seeing happening to understand exactly how the heck we got to where we were. Tune in to DCEKG anywhere podcasts or YouTubes are available. You won't regret it.